Good morning and welcome in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, even as we gather together on this first Lord's Day of a new year in 2024. We are thankful for all of the Lord's mercies in the year that is past. Uh, we acknowledge, as many have done of our forefathers of old, thus far has the Lord helped us, and we look to the Lord again as we have entered into a new year for His continued grace and mercy as we seek to walk the Christian way. If you turn to the back of uh, your bulletins, you will see there's just one printed announcement uh, this morning. That's just to remind you, uh, next uh, Lord's Day, Lord willing, following morning service, we plan to have our monthly fellowship lunch and the details of uh, what you're asked to bring if you're a regular part of our congregation here are printed there for you. So, with that announcement made, let us now prepare our hearts to worship the one true and living God. The call to worship this morning comes from the book of Psalms and Psalm 107. Psalm 107 and reading verses 10 through 16. Let us hear God's Word. Psalm 107 at verse 10. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death, and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. For He shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Amen. And so far, the reading of God's Holy Word. Let us together now return praise to our Lord and our Redeemer as we join in singing hymn number four, all praise to God who reigns above. Number four, if you're able, please stand to sing.
you will please remain standing and turn forward to hymn number 119. O Lord, how shall I meet thee? 119. Please be seated. And now let us come to God in prayer. Let us all pray. Almighty and eternal God, we do bow down before you again this morning. We come to worship you, 
for you are the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You and you alone are God. You are the one true and living God. All the gods of this world are but the vain imaginations of men. You and you alone, O Lord, are worthy of the praise and the honor and the glory. And so it is we come to worship you for all that you are in the perfection of your being. And we worship you for the perfection of all your works and ways. As we think of your work of creation, your mighty and powerful making of all things, O Lord, by the word of your power, out of nothing and into nothing. We worship you, God, our Creator. And we worship you as God, the great sustainer of all that you have made. Even we recognize, O Lord, the very breath with which we praise you, the heartbeats that sustain our lives in order that we might give to you that which is your rightful due, comes from you. And so we worship you as the God of mighty providence, preserving and governing all your creatures and all their actions. Most of all, we worship you as God, the mighty Savior, the God of plenteous redemption. Even as we read in our call to worship, experienced in the physical realm, O Lord, in the old covenant for your people Israel, their deliverance, even after they had foolishly sinned against you, turned against you, yet they found you to be a God of grace and mercy when they cried to you in their trouble, that you were God, their mighty deliverer. You brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death. You burst their bonds apart. And so it is that we have experienced, O Lord, in the same way spiritually as we found ourselves enslaved in sin, powerless to do anything about it. Indeed, O Lord, we were those fallen with none to help. But when we cried out to You, when You granted those gifts of repentance and faith, we found You to be our mighty deliverer from sin and darkness, and death, and the power of the evil one. You brought us out of darkness and brought us into the wonderful and glorious kingdom of Your Son, the kingdom of light. You burst our bonds apart, O Lord, and set us free so that now we rejoice as the free sons and daughters of the kingdom of Your Son. Therefore, O Lord, we come to praise You. We come to thank You for Your steadfast love toward us, undeserving as we are. We thank You for Your wondrous work of salvation, even in saving sinners such as us. As we reflect upon that glorious work, O Lord, again we come to confess our sins to acknowledge that we stand in great need of this salvation, that we are lost without it. We are those, O Lord, who would perish in our sins eternally had You not come in the person of Your Son to save us from our sins. 
And so it is, O Lord, we acknowledge sins of word and thought and deed. Even on this first Lord's Day of a new year, even as it was new, O Lord, in terms of the turning of the season, yet, O Lord, we still sin against You each and every day. Even in the first day of the year, despite our resolutions, we know that we are not yet perfected in glory. And so we would come and humble ourselves before You and acknowledge those sins and plead again the only remedy for them, nothing in ourselves, not even the pleading for forgiveness is meritorious, but only of Your free mercy and grace to wash us clean and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, then we do give You thanks for Your goodness and mercy to us, even in this past week and this very day, for gifts and blessings, material and spiritual. We acknowledge again that You are the great giver and benefactor. You are the one, O Lord, who gives super abundantly above all that we can ask or think. And so we return once again to give You thanks for all of Your goodness to us. We come too with our prayers now of intercession and petition. We come to pray for this world in all of its need. We remember again those troubled spots of the world. We think in particular of the land of the Ukraine and the continued warfare and conflict. Even as it has turned cold here, O Lord, we think of the winter season there, particularly for many, O Lord, without shelter, homes destroyed. We pray that You would have mercy upon them even with, again, heightened uh, conflict, uh, with uh, missiles and uh, bombs raining down, Lord, have mercy upon them. We ask that You'd restrain the hands of evil men and that You might be pleased soon, O Lord, to uh, resolve and bring this conflict to an end. We think of Your church in the land of the Ukraine today, wherever they may be meeting, huddled maybe outside in the cold with little shelter. Grant them great encouragement, we pray. And grant that as they do so, there may be a bright light in the darkness, showing that even if they may have lost many other things, even all other things in this world, yet, O oh Lord, they have that inheritance. They have that hope which can never be taken from them. Grant that they may be such great witnesses to Your gospel today, that in Your good purpose, O Lord, would draw many others, even in the preaching of the good news about Jesus, to Yourself and to Your great salvation. Father, we pray too for the conflict in the Middle East. Father, we pray that You would have mercy there also. We ask, O Lord, for those who are bereaved, that You would comfort them. For those, O Lord, who continue to wait for news of those who were taken hostage and captive, have mercy upon them, we pray. We remember those caught up in conflict, whether they be fighting on the front lines, as it were, or whether, O Lord, they would be in other roles and capacities. Lord, You know all of the details. We pray that You would have mercy. And even in the midst of all of these things, O Lord, we pray that Your purposes might be ones of grace, that You would draw many, O Lord, of Your old covenant people 
even to the truth as it is in Jesus, that You would open their eyes, O Lord, to the One whom You have already sent, Messiah, the One who came to save His people from their sins. Draw many, O Lord, even Jew and Gentile, this day, through the proclamation of Your Word, even to the ends of the earth, to Your great glory. Father, then we pray for our own land. We pray for our leaders as You command us to do. We pray for those in office in every branch and level of government. We ask that You would have mercy upon them, even during this election season where there are many clamoring voices, many, O Lord, in office desiring to continue, those, O Lord, who aspire to office, to be elected. We pray that You would have mercy upon each candidate, that You would have mercy upon those responsible for the administration of elections. Lord, in all of these things, we are thankful that we have such liberty and opportunity to elect leaders. We know that this freedom is not given to all in each and every country around the world. And with all of, O oh Lord, its supposed imperfections and difficulties, those that are real, those perhaps that are not, whatever the circumstance, O oh Lord, we pray that You would help us and that You might be pleased to give us righteous and just government. O Lord, we know Your Word teaches us that there is no authority on earth that is not derived from You, from the divine authority from that great throne room of heaven above. And so we petition You, O Lord, that You might be pleased to give to those already in office and those who will be in office after elections, that they may seek to govern and administer and rule according to righteousness and justice. Father, then we do pray for our first responders. We are thankful for them, O Lord. We pray for them particularly in this winter season and the many demands made upon their uh, resources and their service. We pray that You would help them for our firefighters, for our law enforcement community, for our medical community. We are thankful for each and every one of them whether we have benefited directly in recent times from their service or whether just generally, O oh Lord, we are thankful for their service to our community or to those that are known to us. We pray that You'd continue to grant them strength and help. Father, then we think of those who are deployed, even those among our own congregation. We pray that You would continue to help them even as a year has turned, O oh Lord, and perhaps they were not able to be with their family during times of celebration at Christmas and New Year, we pray that You'd continue to comfort them, that You'd help them on the mission to which uh, they are making contribution, that You'd grant them success. And in good time, O oh Lord, whether it be soon or whether it be later, that You would return them home safely to their families, to their communities, after their deployment. Lord, have mercy upon them. And then, our Father, we do turn to the needs of our own congregation. We pray again for those who are not able to be with us, those kept perhaps by the adverse weather. We pray that You might be with them today, turn their hearts to Yourself, wherever they may be, kept at home. 
We think of others, O Lord, who are sick, those recovering from surgeries, O Lord. We pray that You would strengthen them and that You would speed their recovery. We pray that the intervention might accomplish the purpose for which it was intended and that they might find relief. We think of others, O Lord, who have been enduring either long-term medical issues or even just the viruses and coughs, colds of the winter season. You know again, O Lord, each and every circumstance. You know how easily, O Lord, our bodies and minds succumb to affliction, how we can be dragged down physically and mentally and even spiritually. Father, we pray that today the balm of Your Word might bring relief, that You would strengthen, O Lord, in body and soul, even according to Your abundant grace. We think, O Lord, of those who may have trial, those, O Lord, who may have temptation. You know us, pity us, we pray. We think of specific circumstances, O Lord, and ask that You would hear our prayers. We remember baby Charlotte again in the hospital. And Father, in the ups and downs of day to day, we pray that You'd continue to show mercy to this little one. We are thankful for the way in which, O Lord, You have sustained her life. We pray that You would continue to do so. We pray for the rest of the family, for parents and siblings. We pray that You'd have mercy upon them today. Even as another day comes, and in Your good providence it will close, we pray that You would give them grace and strength to walk through this ongoing trial. Lord, we do think of our young people also. We are thankful for the time of uh, refreshment and uh, the time away from studies in the uh, Christmas season. We pray now that as many prepare to return, some perhaps already, we ask that You would give them again that uh, fortitude of uh, mind and body to give themselves to the calling that they've received at this time to study. For those who will be traveling back to college, we pray that You would watch over them. We pray even in this uh, cold uh, uh, season that You would grant them safety of journey, watch over their goings out and their comings in. We pray that You might help them to equip themselves well in this semester that is coming, whether it be in institutions away from this locale, whether it be in local college classes, whether it be in homeschool programs, whatever the particulars, O oh Lord. We pray that You would help students and teachers alike to give glory to You. This is Your world, O oh Lord. All knowledge belongs to You. It is Your knowledge that You have revealed. We pray that as we study whatever may be particular subjects, we may do so with such a mindset, giving thanks to You for the wonders of this great creation that You have made, and that we might learn better both knowledge and wisdom of how we may live to Your glory, even as You've called all humanity to do. So be with our young people and bless them, we pray. And so, Father, we commend all these things to You. We pray that You would hear our prayers as we ask them in Christ's name. Amen. For the consecutive reading of God's Word in the New Testament, we turn again this morning to Luke's Gospel 
and to chapter 2. Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. This morning we're going to read from verse 22 through verse 40. Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, and reading verses 22 through verse 40. Would you please rise, if you are able, for the reading of God's holy Word. Luke chapter 2, and commencing to read at verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God, and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee. 
to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Amen. And thus far the reading of God's Word. Please be seated. And now again, let us turn to God in prayer. Let us all pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask again for Your help as we would hear Your Word proclaimed. We pray that You would send Your Spirit that He might help us to open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears, that He might enlighten our minds that He would grant the gifts of repentance and faith so that we might hear Your Word and respond aright. Deliver us from all our distractions, we pray. Pity us in our weaknesses. Help us in this central act of our worship to hear, to heed, and to respond aright, even to all that You would say to us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please now turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews and chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and this morning we are going to read from verse 32 through verse 39. Hebrews chapter 10 commencing to read at verse 32 and reading through the end of the chapter at verse 39. Again, please give your careful attention. This is the Word of God. Hebrews 10 at verse 32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and, and preserve their souls. Amen. The grass withers, 
and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. As a faithful pastor, the author of Hebrews is focused on the concerns of his flock. He is familiar with his readers' strengths and weaknesses, their trials and temptations, their struggles, their difficulties. He knew in particular the threats to their faith. He also knew the events that made up the particular history of this congregation, the things that had happened to them, the things that they had done. Of course, as we have seen throughout this letter, he is particularly concerned that these professing believers do not shrink back and be destroyed. He understood that whatever might happen to them in the Lord's sovereign providence, this mattered more than anything else, that they press on, that they do not shrink back and be destroyed. And so, as we return to the consecutive exposition of the book of Hebrews this morning, and come to this particular passage, verses 32 through 39 of chapter 10. The author, he assures a flexible pastoral approach, recognizing that some people need to be challenged, others encouraged, others warned, and others inspired. Lord willing, we are going to take uh, two Sunday mornings to go through uh, this passage. So, for this morning, we make but a beginning, and we're going to do so under two headings. First of all, powerful memory, and then secondly, future receiving. So, powerful memory and future receiving. So, first of all, then, powerful memory in verses 32 through 34. The author of Hebrews knew the great value of historical examples. At the end of chapter 10 here, he turns to the history of this particular congregation. Now, ours is a generation that often thinks that the past and history has little value at best and sometimes considers irrelevant altogether. This is partly because in our own day and generation, we are very self-centered, so we do not particularly care what anybody else thinks. And if we think that about others around us, we think about it even more of those who are no longer with us. Who cares about what anybody else thought or experienced? To use a very um, common phrase you hear today, it's only ever about me, isn't it? It's all about me. 
In addition to that, sadly, sometimes even in the minds of Christians and in the professing church of the Lord Jesus Christ, thinking is shaped in the minds and hearts of believers by the secular ideas of this world that's all around us. In particular, the secular idea of progress. That we know far much more and so we know far much better than those who have ever gone before us. So what value can whatever they thought and did be to us? We think that anything that happened before our own time is, again, at best, inferior to our own day and what we think. C.S. Lewis, in the way that perhaps only Lewis could, called such thinking chronological snobbery, he said. It's chronological snobbery to think in that way, that everything else that was before me in time is inferior to what I think here today. Well, in contrast to our day and generation, the author of Hebrews thought the past was a very important resource for the present. He begins here in verse 32 with this very important word, recall or remember. Now, the author here does not ask his readers to recall things simply because they're in the past, just as there can be chronological snobbery with regard to the present versus the past. There can be some sort of chronological snobbery about the good old days, and the past was always better than where it is today. We look back with those somewhat rose-tinted spectacles to those golden days, and weren't they always so much better? That's not what the author is doing here, saying, look, the past was always better. Just look back there. Indeed, what he seeks to do here is cause them to review, remember, recall, but to do so in such a way to draw the lessons of the past, to draw encouragement from the past, to draw assurance from God's ways with us in the past and with other believers, so that we might be encouraged and strengthened in the present. See, in many ways, it's not the times when things go, when things go well that really define our Christian lives. Many times, perhaps far too often, we just want everything to go well and for life to be good and easy as we think of it. But the really significant times for the believer is often not those kinds of circumstances. There are times of trial and difficulty and even danger. Now, this tells us something about how we should think of those adverse circumstances as we consider them, how we should approach trials and difficulties when they come. Things happen often suddenly. Perhaps you've experienced that even since the new year has turned. Circumstances can change so suddenly, can't they? Even if you can't point to a particular yourself, 
You don't have to look far in this world to, to think of that. Problems arise, and we simply evaluate that often by thinking something terrible has occurred. What benefit can it be? We just acknowledge its adversity. We think often this way in the face of sickness, don't we? We think this way in the face of death and bereavement. We think this way in the circumstance of economic hardship when we don't have all the physical things that either we once had or the things that we would like to have. And we could multiply the examples, couldn't we? But this passage reminds us that such circumstances, sickness, death, economic adversity, are the occasions to prove faith, to show the genuineness of that which we say with our lips that we believe to demonstrate the root of faith is in us. And what we were thinking about in our Sunday school hour this morning, that genuine fruit of faith in Christian character. It's in these adverse circumstances that we find out that of which our faith is really made. And so in this sense, we should view such trials and difficulties as opportunities to bring glory to God and as those positive challenges to demonstrate, display genuine faith as having been received from God Himself. So what are we to do when we find ourselves in such circumstances? Well, we should endeavor to mine out, as our forefathers would have said, the treasure in those circumstances. Mine out the treasure today for benefit today, for sure, but also, which is the emphasis of this passage, for benefit in the future. This is what the author does here. He wants his readers to remember what they did in the past in such adverse circumstances through faith, what they had been enabled by God's mercy and grace to do in times of earlier trial, and to remember how sufficient is God's grace. It was then in the past, and it will be now in the present, and it always will be in the future. The sufficiency of God's grace for those who look to Him in trouble, past, present, and future, verses 32 through 34. Notice here the kinds of things that God carried these Christians through by the power they'd received through faith in the Lord. There's a great reality check here. There was a hard struggle. This was not a life of ease for these Christians. It was characterized by suffering. 
Now, we pause for a moment to be practical here. What is it that Christians fear about suffering? Maybe you've asked yourself that question in the past. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you have and you haven't asked it very recently and you don't recall what you thought about, meditated on, on that question. So, we're going to take a moment or two to think about that this morning. What is it that Christians fear about suffering? Well, yes, there is the immediate suffering itself, whatever that entails, the, the physical difficulty, pain in sickness, uh, pain in the sense of loss in bereavement, um, the hardship to do with economic difficulties, and they are not to be denied or diminished. But that's not all that's involved often for the Christian fearing suffering. Alongside and often greater is the fear that we will fail, that we might give in, that we might turn back, that we might not continue in the faith, in the face of such circumstances. Here, these believers learned of God's sustaining grace in the face of a hard struggle. Not that God gave immediate relief here. They had to endure this hard struggle, but God enabled them to do so. He says, you end do it, verse 32, in the midst of it, fighting fears within and fears without, as the hymn writer says, the author assures them, you endured. What did that entail? Well, in these early trials, we're not given all the specifics, but we're given some. They've been subjected to reproach and, reflection and affliction, both by word and action, They'd been persecuted for being believers. Now, we know little of that. We may know some by word here in the West as Christians, but we know little even of that at times. That might not always be so. Don't think that that cannot come to the professing church of the Lord Jesus here in the West as it's come to the professing church of the Lord Jesus in many other parts of the world. We often pray, both in our services and our prayer meeting, for what we call the persecuted church, those who are suffering reproach and affliction for the sake of Christ. Were we to face that, do you fear, do you have any measure of concern? anxiety, worry, that in response to such opposition, in response to insults and persecution, that you might not endure. That's what the author here is seeking to address. It might even result in a denial of the faith. You know, I didn't sign up in Christianity for such persecution. Happy to be a Christian when everybody else around me is a Christian, and even those who are not are generally tolerant, or at least 
The Christians have the upper hand, so those who are not really can't do anything about it. They can't bring reproach and affliction. It's just not possible. They're not in a position to do so. Happy to be a Christian then. But what if in the Lord's sovereign providence that circumstance changes? Maybe even suddenly. Are we concerned that then our faith might not be strong enough? That we would be afraid like Peter, even confronted by an insignificant seeming individual. You are one of them, are you not? Not me. I don't know the man. I know nothing about this Christianity. It's not me. Do we fear that that might be the case? It wasn't so here, was it? God enabled these believers. It wasn't that they in and of themselves were made of different stuff. They were kind of enduring kind of people. They were these kind of rugged individuals who could deal with anything that came across their path. It was God who enabled them. And even to be partners with those who were so treated. It wasn't just God enabled them to do so when it came to their door, but they were willing to engage and perhaps experience some of that opposition for the sake of others who were on the front lines, being partners with those so treated, verse 33. To this, the author adds that some were put in prison. Many had their property confiscated, verse 34. But by faith, these Christians still ministered to those afflicted and even accepted their own losses with joy, the text says. Do you identify with that here? This was the hallmark of the early church. Not merely that they endured affliction, they did do that. Never perfectly but characteristically, consistently. But they did so exhibiting a joy whilst doing it. Now, brethren, we have to be honest this morning. How so often we might say, well, I am willing to do it. I might even be willing to do it and do it. But do I do it with great joy? Or do I find myself complaining? You know, why do I have to do this? Or worse still, why does God ask me and require me to do this? Why in his, if we pray as we did this morning, praising God for His sovereign providence, why doesn't He just will this circumstance out of the way? He's the God of all power, is He not? So Why? And when he doesn't see fit always to tell me that, I have this complaining, resentful spirit. It's costing me to support my brethren. It costs me to go and visit them in prison. I could do something better with that time, right? 
if I need to support those who find themselves in such circumstances out of my, as I call them, resources, or our family resources. That means I don't have access to use that for something I wanted to do. Do we do these things with joy? I think I've told you before, I was thinking about this in the week, that after many years of being in the ministry in one place, um, you often think and are concerned, you use the same illustrations over and over again. Um, I trust I'm not going to weary you with this one again this morning, brethren, but I have a good friend in the ministry. He always would tell his congregation, when asked to serve the Lord with time, with money, with gifts, with talents, whatever it might be in the particulars, the question is not, do I have to? The point is that you get the great opportunity to do so, that the Lord calls us in His great mercy and grace, co-workers with Him. And yet so often it's that way, isn't it? Do I have to? I'd really prefer somebody else did it, and then I don't have to. But we get the opportunity to, and that's what these people did here. One commentator says it very boldly and very bluntly. He says, quote, this is what faith requires. If we are not willing to endure affliction or stand with those who are so afflicted, then we simply cannot be Christians, end quote. Now, brethren, if you're anything like me, you probably want to start picking that apart theologically and start saying, well, yeah, but wait a minute. You know, what about this? What about that? I want to sort of bring this in here and you start arguing about how it's expressed. And it's not always inappropriate to do that. We might say, you know, that could be said a slightly better way, nuanced way, rather than a sentence. You could write a whole book to clarify this and that and the other. But, but often the problem is, brethren, if you're anything like me, by the time you've done all of that and got it absolutely right for the author, you've lost the whole point, haven't you? And the, uh, the force with which it comes is just dissipated. So I don't really feel challenged by it at all. So let's pray this morning that we can restrain our editorial inclinations as to how this could be better said, and we feel the force of this. This is what faith requires. If we're not willing to endure affliction or stand with those who are so afflicted, then we simply cannot be Christians, end quote. It is biblical. What did our Lord say? Luke 9, 23 through 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Think of the apostles. In the early days after the resurrection, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, called them in, demanded that they stop preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. And to drive the lesson home, they flogged them. Now, brethren, I think I'm safe in saying this morning, none of us know what it is to have been flogged. Um, if you do, then you can come and tell me, and I'll correct what I've just said, and I'll say, well, there's somebody who knows what it's like to have been flogged. Um, Jewish flogging, 39 stripes. 
They did 39 just so they didn't miscount and felt they'd broken the law. It was 40, but they did 39 just to be sure. 39 stripes lashed. We don't know specifically that it was that um, 39 lashes, but they were flocked by the Jews. How did the apostles respond to that? Did they say, well, you know, Jesus called us to that, so I guess, you know, I wish I didn't have to be flogged for the sake of Christ. Why doesn't God, you know, bring down fire from heaven and consume the Sanhedrin? Why didn't He do it before we got sent to be flogged? Acts 5.41, they, that is Peter and John, left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's the right response, isn't it? Rejoicing with joy that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's what genuine faith accomplishes in the life of the believer. This is the lesson from the past of these very readers of Hebrews that the author is drawing their attention to. Not necessarily to the specifics that they were lashed like the apostles, but to the principle. He speaks of their confiscated property, verse 34. You yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. That's why they didn't resent um, giving of what had been given to them into their stewardship of property for the benefit of others. Think of the Apostle Paul, Romans 8 verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. What is the great goal for the Christian in such adverse circumstances? It's to stand firm. To use the um, author's words here, it's to endure. It's to not shrink back. As he looks to the past, he said, that is what you did. You endured by God's grace. And therefore, as he comes to the present, he says, therefore, do not shrink back now. What he says to them is what he says to us today. As the Lord has enabled you to stand firm in the past, Christian, brother and sister in Christ, do not shrink back now. Do not turn back today. This is what we are to do. That's the great priority for the Christian and the church. We don't have to win the culture wars of our own day. Nor as Christians in the church are we to expect and presume that we will have great political triumphs in the civil realm, that we are thankful when God so orders it. Our first goal and greatest priority is always to be true to the Lord, to be faithful to Christ in this hostile world. We stand on that solid rock that foundation that can never move, even in the changing winds of time and space, Christ Himself. 
And so the author here challenges the readers to remember what their forefathers, their forebears in the faith, had done through faith by remembering that their predecessors withstood their trials. There were anti-Christian forces in the past, just like they were facing in the present, and as we've looked at this book uh, before, likely to increase in the future for them. These anti-Christian forces employed insults, reproach, affliction, persecution. But as these Christians faced this, what was the focus of their thought? Was it on the persecutors? Was it on the force of the opposition? I'm sure they thought about that some. It would not be natural or human not to. But it wasn't the greatest thing in their mind, was it? What was the greatest thing in their mind? They thought of Christ, and in particular, they thought of His great example, and they thought of the great grace of Christ which would sustain them as they participated together in Christ's sufferings. That's what helped them to overcome their fear, the fear of the thing itself, the fear of failing in the force of such a thing, by focusing on Christ and their fellowship with Him in Christ's sufferings. Do we know anything of that ourselves, brethren? That's the question. This here was the testimony of this Christian congregation. Not perfect, with many difficulties, trials, circumstances, but the testimony of an enduring, persevering congregation in the midst of affliction, to whom the author was here writing. Well, then that brings us in the second place to future receiving. Future receiving, verses 36 through 37. If the present were to involve suffering as it would for them, as it does for us, Christians then and Christians now are able to know that the future involves receiving present suffering, but future receiving. We can look forward as they could look forward to receiving all that God has promised to those who trust in Him. Here's yet another way in which Christians are truly countercultural in whatever day they may be called to live, be it the first century or the 21st century. What does the world generally say? What does the world say today? It's buy now and pay later, isn't it? Give me everything now, and um, I'll try and figure out a way to pay for it sometime. What is it that the Christian says? What's characteristic of faith in Christ as pilgrims as we walk through this world? Sacrifice now. Suffer now. And receive later. Sacrifice now, suffer now, receive later. The future orientation, as we might say, the future part, perspective of the Christian faith is one of the great themes and emphases of the book of Hebrews. And here we see why that is. 
The knowledge of what is stored up for us as believers is to strengthen us, to empower us in our present trials. This is the point of the very definition of faith that we'll come to, Lord willing, when we get to Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews 11 verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, of course, this perspective is dominant, prevalent throughout all of Scripture. It's prevalent, therefore, amongst all the professing people of God down through all the generations. It's this perspective that gives boldness to Christians in the midst of suffering. How is it that Christians can display great fortitude and bravery and boldness as the apostles did, as many others have done since then? They do so in the sure knowledge of a glorious future that will be theirs. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5.1, we know, brother and sister, can you say that this morning? If you're a Christian, you can. We know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. The Apostle Peter wrote to Christians, under trial, you remember. First Peter 1, verses 4 and 5. He speaks to them of an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded. You will receive it. It is there and it will be kept for you. And you are being kept for it, Christian, this morning. And God's promise will not fail in either part. You will not get to heaven and find that it's not there. And heaven will not have its great reward. And every Christian for whom Christ died will not be there to receive it. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Why so? Because we are citizens of heaven. As we were thinking of prayer meeting last Wednesday evening. We are citizens of heaven even now. That's why we're able to grasp the reality of that. Things that we have already begun to enjoy in part, in down payment, even in the midst of present trouble and difficulty, but which will be ours in glorious totality and consummation on that last great day. Revelation 7, verse 16, it speaks of believers in the glory above. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Brethren, can you, can you preach on a text too often? Can you cite a text too often? I trust you cannot. This is a favorite 
phrase of mine from the Scriptures, God will wipe every tear from our eyes, whatever the cause, however many there may have been, not one will He not wipe away from our eyes. Isn't that a great encouragement? You will receive. The author of Hebrews especially locates our hope in the return, of course, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, verse 37. We'll think about this much more, Lord willing, next week. But for this morning, Hebrews 10.37 says, Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. Whilst we wait for that, we are to recognize that, as the author of Hebrews has already told us over and over again, it's not that Jesus is not with us at all, and we must wait to receive this in the future. He is present with us spiritually even now, though on that last great day, He will be with us in the fullness of all that God has purposed and promised for us. This is what the author has been teaching throughout his letter, that when Christ ascended to the glory, even as the great high priest of His people, having offered that once-for-all sacrifice, He didn't do so to become inaccessible to us so that we are cut off from Him until that day of future receiving. He did so so that He might become even more accessible to us, even ahead of that glorious future receiving. Yes, He is bodily absent from us, but He's spiritually present. And therefore, we wait for our King to return. Yes, in the picture of the parables of the Gospels, the King returning from the far country, we wait for Him to consummate in glory His kingdom. But as we do so, we know for sure that He is coming because He is spiritually present with us now. And we therefore serve Him, even as He enables us while we wait, whilst we look forward and upward to the future with hope and joyful expectation. Brothers and sisters, there may be a thing since January 1st. We're not very far in, are we? We're January 7th. There may be things that have drawn your eyes down to the difficulties of this world. And they're not necessarily just to be simply ignored or denied or uh, take that stoic um, perspective to. We are to be responsible in such things. But most of all, we are still to raise our eyes, raise our heads upward and forward. What does Paul say? I do not consider present affliction to be compared with the surpassing glory which will be ours. That's why Christians never simply tolerate their circumstances like the Stoic did. We're not just resigned, oh, well, this is how it is. I can't do anything about it. We just have to wait till it comes to an end. But in the midst of it, we can be enlivened by this mighty hope. 
And yet, as we do so, there is always that danger, isn't there? Always that temptation. That's why the author here addressed these various different groups with a different pastoral approach, exhortation, challenge, sympathy, inspiration even, because Christians still face that real danger of abandoning the, t of abandoning the faith in the midst of such opposition. You see, the Scripture says, O oh, death, where is your sting? What is the answer to that? It's one thing to issue the challenge. Oh, death, where is your sting? It can only be issued in reality and in true defiance of the power of death in the power of the resurrection of Christ. Apart from Christ, death is mortally ruinous to body and soul. Do you know that? Do you realize that? Do you understand that? It's one of the most difficult things to stand at a graveside and cannot say in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection of the dead, But for a believer, though there may be the sadness of temporary parting, that is the great defiance of death in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection of the dead. In the sure and certain hope of that final receiving, that future receiving of all that God has purposed and promised for the Christian. And that then explains this writer's urgency about this matter of perseverance in the faith. He says, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. May God grant it to each one of us. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we often find ourselves in trials and difficulties, maybe not the physical sufferings and persecution that other brethren have to face, but nevertheless still real in their degrees of difficulty that you appoint for us. We pray that you would minister to our souls even this morning the great encouragement of Christ that you would remind us and help us to remember your sustaining, enabling grace, how you have enabled us to exercise that faith which is our great responsibility and to not shrink back. Encourage us in this year that lies ahead, we pray in your providence to press on even in whatever circumstances you appoint for us so that we might stand firm and that we might stand firm with others who are so afflicted even to your great glory and so at last together with all of your professing church we might receive 
the consummate kingdom on that last great day. Here is then we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. We turn again to our hymnals and to hymn number 238 as we prepare to come to our Lord's table. Christ is coming, let creation. Please rise to sing if you are able.